This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today, Mebane Faber of Cambria Investments. I know Meb for a long time. He does a lot of really, really interesting things. And if you're a quant, if you're a little bit wonky, you probably know Meb for a very famous white paper he wrote back in 0506 called A Tactical Guide to Asset Allocation. And what's within this fairly simple but very powerful theme is the idea of let's look at allocating to various asset classes on a strictly tactical basis with a quantitative methodology that is simply a 10-month moving average. When when any asset class breaks its 10-month moving average, which looks similar to a 200-day moving average, but is a little, little more sophisticated, it doesn't have as many signals, not as many whipsaws, you only get a signal once a month because it's a monthly, not a daily moving average, that's a sign that markets are, are in a significant downtrend and usually suggests that there's more downside. That paper, coming out as it did right before the financial crisis, is one of the most downloaded papers um, of the past decade in finance and really uh, turned a lot of people's heads about how simple a, a tactical portfolio could be and, and yet still reduce volatility, reduce drawdowns, and, and be very competitive uh, with a benchmark. Uh, but what MEB does these days is essentially create new ideas for ETFs. And he has had a number of these that have been very, very successful. The two we really spend a lot of the show today talking about, the one is called shareholder value. And it's what happens if we sift through the universe of, of domestic or global equities and evaluate them on the combination of dividend yield and stock share buyback. As it turns out, when you screen for those two factors, you eliminate a lot of junk. When you're issuing a dividend, you can't phony up your accounting. We've seen a lot of questionable accounting over the past couple of years and decades. Hey, that dividend check has to go out every quarter. There's no messing around with that. So dividend yield turns out to be a fairly good uh, metric if you're looking for quality of earnings. There's no, it's very hard to phony up dividend yield because you have to issue a check each quarter. And then the same thing with share buyback. Uh, stock share buyback means that you're actually putting money to work, buying shares back, reducing the float, and that actually makes your earnings on a per share basis look better. When you do both of those things, buyback shares and increase your dividends, that tends to create a stock that does better than average. And so the idea behind this dividend slash share buyback ETF has been, here's a way to get a form of quantitative management with a fairly low cost ratio and not especially active. It gets rebalanced quarterly. I know there is some act activity in it. I wouldn't call this a passive index, but it's done fairly well. It's attracted a decent amount of money in a fairly short period of time. Uh, that was the ETF that Meb put out uh, a couple of years ago. The most recent one he put out 
um, is this global value uh, asset allocation. And, and what makes it fascinating is there is essentially zero fee associated with it. There's no internal expense ratio or almost a zero internal expense ratio, and there's no almost no cost to buy it. That's very unusual in the world of ETFs. Uh, but the way MEB describes it, we're looking at a universe where costs are compressed, and there is a pernicious effect of costs over the long haul. And, and so that's why this is developed. I know Meb for a good couple of years. I find him to be, as far as quants go, and he describes himself as a quant light, but I don't know if that's really accurate. As far as quants go, he's very articulate. He speaks English well. Um, live, he's a surfer dude. He lives out in, in, in California. And what I mean by speaks English well, speaks English good, is that very often you get the mathematically minded people um, who are very intelligent, very erudite, but they lack an ability to communicate uh, on a simple basis with lay people who may not have PhDs uh, in mathematics or economics. And, and so you'll find his approach is very straightforward, fairly simple, completely rational, completely evidence-based. Uh, I think if you have an interest in investing or the quantitative approach to, to finance, you'll find this to be a fascinating conversation. Without any further ado, here is my interview with Mebane Faber. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Meb Faber. He runs Cambria Investments. He's the chief investment officer and founder. He's also the author of a number of books, Shareholder Yield, the Ivy Portfolio, Global Value. Meb, welcome to Masters in Business. Great to be here. Thanks. So Meb and I know each other for a good couple of years. Um, I've been a fan of your research and writing for quite a while. A little background on who you are. You are uh, live in Manhattan Beach in California, a little bit of an aspiring surfer dude. Yeah. Um, graduated from University of Virginia, double major, engineering and biology. You're not the first double major we've had with some science and either mathematics or computer science or engineering. It's amongst the quants, that seems to be a fairly popular uh, combination. You know, it gives you the analytical background, right? Or at least at least that's what people the say. The approach to how do I make sense of all this data? How do I organize it? And what, is it, what does it mean going forward? You ha hold both the chartered market technician designation and the chartered alternative investment analyst. That's something that I don't see a lot of these days. I, I took them in the early days when the tests were a lot easier. Right. So I don't know if I could pass them today, but uh, both uh, both I, good experiences. I say that about the bar exam. Oh, right. back when I right. took it, it was you know a couple of drinks and, and that was it. Now it's a real test. Uh, so you be, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, what did you do before you started working on the street? So I was an engineer, you know, but by trade in as an undergrad and was really smitten with biotech. This is in the late 90s. So a lot of the sequencing of the genome was going on really fun time. Right. And so I take I was going to take a year off after college. So I'd done a bunch of grad work as an undergrad, worked really hard and said, you know what, I'm going to take a year off, make some money before I go back and, and back to grad school. And because it could be in the life sciences, five, six, who knows how many year process, right? So I took a year off, worked as a biotech analyst 
uh, for a mutual fund. Right. That was called the Genomics Fund? Yeah. So based- and, and your timing was fantastic. You started right in 2000. And so this was what was so exciting. Look, the internet bubble is peaking and popping. The biotech bubble, same thing. But I was working in DC and you had a lot of the NIH, a lot of the stuff going on was right there. National Institute of Health. I was taking classes at Hopkins and it was just a really fun time. And so after that year and near the end of 2000, stocks had started cratering, right? Especially the biotech. Right. Peaked in March of that year and we're down more, about half. Uh, and, NASDAQ was cut in half by the end of that year, more or less. And so I was fascinated about the investment side. I mean, the, the life science and size I love, but I said, you know what? I'm not quite ready to go back to, to grad school. I'm more interested in the investing world. I was always terrible in the lab anyway. I'd come in, spill viruses everywhere. <laughs> like just it was awful at it. So I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to give this investing world a little more of a chance. And then just slowly kept gravitating away from the biotech and more towards the quant side of the world. And pretty soon, you know, my hobby became the career and, and vice versa. Not not a totally uncommon story. So as you're going through this process of morphing from uh, a biotech and, and bioscience analyst to really a, a quant, who were your early influences? Who affected your thinking about that space? You know, a lot of this was self-taught in the sense that I went out and read everything I could possibly find. So what books really resonated with well, you? What authors, you know, who stayed with you? Because look, everybody in this business has read, or at least people who are making an effort have read hundreds of books, mm -hmm. but everybody has a short, these dozen are my favorite. Well, so there's the classics, right? That there, There's a reason there's classics. Reminiscence of a stock operator, mm -hmm. right? One of the best. Um, extraordinary popular delusions and madness of crowds. And so one of the most important things is, is trying to get a history of investing. So not just what's happened here in the last 10 years, but what's happened in the last 100, what's happened in the last few hundred years elsewhere in the world to really understand what's what's going on. My all-time favorite investing book is Triumph for the Optimist. You know, it's a big coffee table book, so $100, but right. it's $110 at Amazon. It's actually sitting in the shrink wrap on my credenza in the office, waiting for me to find a week to attack it. It's it's just such a great history of markets, what's happened. It'll show you, for example, if you were an Austrian in the beginning of the 20th century, you made no money on stocks. But hey, if you were a US investor where you may have been domiciled, you had amazing returns. Just little things like this, markets that disappeared or you know shut down completely like Russia. Just a great um, starting point for investing. And so, and of course, a lot of the uh, market wizard style books, right? Mm -hmm. Jack Schwager. Some really just wonderful overviews of the personalities and all sorts of different types of investing styles, right? Some people are value guys, some people are momentum guys, but what you learn is there's no one approach, right? But many that people have perfected um, that, can, that can all work. The 50th anniversary of the Buffett letter came out and the comments that some of us had was, hey, instead of trying to be like Buffett uh, and invest like Buffett, be like Buffett. Buffett found a, a formulation that works for him. Putting on his suit, putting on his approach may not work for you. To thine own self be true. How did that sort of philosophy of finding what works for you uh, end up pushing you where you are today? Well, so I traded all throughout college, like a lot of people, right? I was making money 
hand over fist trading these internet names that you'd come back from class and they would have doubled, right? You know, and, and so confusing a bull market with intelligence, right. right? So, and of course I blew up at some point, learned a lot of things, but it, what's really important is like you mentioned, understanding your own psychology. So I have all the behavioral biases. I'm overconfident. I'll take way too much risk. And so this is kind of the whole point of becoming a quant. And it took years and a lot of pain to learn this. Said, look, I need to make rules for myself. Otherwise, I'll do the dumbest possible things, you know, out there. And but it's important finding a style that that resonates with you. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Meb Faber. He is a quant. He runs Cambria Investments. You put out a kind of fascinating uh, commentary, a blog post that was headlined: "There's never been a better time to be an investor." than today. Explain. What you've had over the past 30 years, really since the 40 years actually, since the first index funds started coming out, is an opportunity where the fees of investing, so even simple brokerage commissions, that was one of the first, right? But- Charles Schwab, the discount brokerage, the whole run of stuff in the 70s. They, For people who aren't old enough to remember this, the commissions were fixed by regulation and when that was deregulated, people could cut their rates from fairly high to much, much less expensive. And now that that process has continued. And the advent of mutual funds and now ETFs and this competition between firms that have allowed fees. If you remember back to the 70s and 80s, I mean, the, the fees on these funds were just atrocious, right? 5% loads on the front and back end, 12B1 fees, annual management fees up north of 2 3% was standard, right? right? But you have now this, this move towards, and Vanguard, certainly one of the pioneers, but a lot of following, you can gain access to an investing portfolio for a really cheap amount. Right. And so you've had an advent. I know you've been working in this space too. a lot of um, automated investment solutions Mm -hmm. for one, just things that can give people access to a global diversified portfolio for really cheap. And it's a wonderful thing. Now, there's a lot. The flip side of that is a lot of the access simply allows people to trade more, which isn't a good thing. Right. Because usually they're their own worst enemy. Um, it's like giving a you know a, a drug addict a bigger needle, but but overall it's been a vastly uh, positive benefit to the to the individual investor. So let's talk a little bit about quantitative investing. Uh, some previous guests on the show have included Cliff Asness uh, of AQR, Jim O'Shaughnessy of uh, OSAM, um, Rob Arnott of uh, Research Affiliates. These are guys who are essentially legends in the industry. And you describe yourself as a quant. For listeners who may not be familiar with what quantitative investing is, give us a quick description. I, I like to say I'm a quant light. So I, I like to come up with approaches that work where you take a 10,000 foot view and say, look, here's some basic, simple rules. There's rules to sort investments. So say stocks, for example, to be able to say, look, we're going to pick these stocks based on these rules for buying, these rules for selling. So that way you remove the emotions of saying, man, I really love Apple products. We should be buying it. Or I really hate the CEO. And it gives it a foundation of logic, right? So it, As opposed to emotion. Right. And it, um, it allows you to come up with a rules-based process for 
any market environment or a style. And, and a, a big thing that can also be dangerous if people abuse it, it allows you to look back in history on how such a system would have performed, how that logic would have done in various market environments. So at least you have an idea of what's possible. So is that what attracted you to uh, quant-based investing, being rules-driven and objective as opposed to more intuitive and depending on whatever you had for, for breakfast that so day? You remember coming right out of college, I was doing biotech and it was long only. So it didn't matter if you pick the four or 10 best biotech stocks out of the sector, they all went down 60, 70, 80%, right? right? So wanting to understand that process, which automatically leads you to become macro. And the, and the one of the fun and challenging things in our world is that these these market regimes can go on for years, right? There There's how my mother grew up investing is totally different than the environment I grew up in or a Japanese investor in the 90s. But those can last for years and decades. And it completely um, skews your your belief of what's happening. You know, like people in the 90s believed 15, 20% a year was reasonable for stocks. Right. right? You, you, whenever you have a big rally and you ask people, what are you expecting? We saw it with house prices. We saw it with equities. What are you expecting from this asset class in the coming year? It's always a reflection of of what just took place. It's pure recency effect and no recognition of the underlying long-term averages. And, and you almost have to be a comedian or at least appreciate a with a little humor the possibilities of what can happen, right? So to mm -hmm. be able to look back to a 1987-style event or be able to say with two thoughts in your head that stocks could easily double from here or decline 80% because both have happened in the past, but to be able to ha believe in that possibility, however rare, is really challenging, but I think it's also important. So- when you look at markets mathematically, what is it that you're actually looking at? So we believe there's two main sort of schools of thought in what works historically in investing. And it's rare to find someone that believes in both. It's kind of like talking about religion or politics. There's not a lot of people that are both Democrat and Republicans, right? So, right. so my is value and momentum or trend, right? Mm -hmm. And usually those two styles and people that follow them don't uh, believe in, the, in in each other. But it's true. They've both worked historically value buying stocks that are cheap, for example, whether it's by dividends or some other earnings metric, but also momentum and trend, buying markets that are going up, but also importantly, avoiding the ones that are going down. Both can work great. Our favorite setup is when they intersect, mm -hmm. you know, when something is cheap and going up. Uh, but really, those are the two main schools of thought we use when uh, when we're applying the quantitative logic. It's funny you mention that because Cliff Asness talks about the advantage of purchasing value and the impact of momentum. And then somebody else who I really should get in here one of these days, I think you know Wes Gray of Alpha Architect. His book, Quantitative Value, looks at the combination of less expensive stocks that are doing well or, or are trending upwards, but are cheap to begin with. It's it's a fascinating combination how a lot of different quants, you know, you have a parable of the six blind men um, describing the elephant from uh, John Goffrey Sachs's poem. I've used that metaphor many times, 
But it looks like a lot of quants are describing the same elephant. Yeah, and they apply different ways, of course, right? Some are doing it in the stock world. Some are doing it sector rotation. Some are doing it across countries or even across commodities and bonds in a, in a multi-asset class portfolio. There's a lot of different ways to attack the problem, um, and different ones work you know, better and worse, but we, uh, we're firm believers there. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Mebane Faber. He's a quant and chief investment officer of Cambria Investments. He's also the author of a number of books. Uh, we'll share some of the other ones later. What I want to talk about now is the Ivy portfolio, your analysis of some of the strategies, the big uh, endowments like Harvard and Yale uh, put to work. If you look at back at the biggest endowment, so it's particularly Harvard and Yale, they allocate their portfolio in a certain way. And historically, it's had a number of features. One, they have a true global focus. So they're not just investing in the US. A lot of American investors, and this actually happens in every country, the have home, a home, the home country, home bias. country yeah. bias. In the US, they invest 70% of their really? equity exposure to US stocks. That's it should, huge. It'd be at a minimum or maximum, it should be 50 as, mm -hmm. a, as a percent. So they, they have a global focus. They allocate to real assets. So uh, think about real estate and or commodity type of projects. Um, but, but most of it is equity-like assets, low amount of bonds with a long-term time horizon. And so they do some weirder stuff too, a lot of private vehicles like hedge funds and private equity. And so there's some benefits to that allocation. Over time, it's a great allocation, but it can run into a lot of trouble as uh, markets gyrate in the short term, which we saw in 2008, 2009. Many of these endowments, on paper at least, lost half at some they point. They got crushed. They really got shot. So let's talk a little bit about numbers. As of the most recent data we accessed, Harvard, $36.4 billion endowment. Makes you wonder why anyone there even pays tuition. Yale, 23.9. Stanford, 1.4 billion. Billion with a B. These are enormous sums of money. Uh, what are these guys, you mentioned what they do right. Why did they run into so much trouble in 08, 09? It doesn't look like they've fully recovered. And here we are, geez, it's seven years after that. And they are, whereas the U.S. markets have gotten back to their pre-08 highs and then some, these guys are still pretty much underwater from that period. Well, two problems. One is that we talk a lot about looking at history. 08, 09 was not really an environment we'd seen in the U.S. since really the, the 30s, right, where a, everything kind of went down. And a lot of people that had been investing, it's almost like a deflationary shock where the real assets went down. All the equities went down. The only thing that did well was bonds, which they don't have much of. So that's right. one problem. 73, 74, kind of similar. R right. Much but more it's inflationary just... as opposed to right. deflationary. Equity-wise, almost the same fall over a longer period of time. And the problem with having, it's not a problem, it's just a feature of having an equity-heavy portfolio is that it's going to get creamed, right? So right. you go through these huge bear markets, and they say they have a time frame of you know, a hundred years or just forever, but, but, they don't. but they had a mismatch with their cash and liquidity needs, right? So they, they're supposed to be paying for these buildings. And a lot of these endowments are generating something like a third or half of the budget for the school, right? So they run into these huge liquidity crunch. So it's a mi mismatch and the, and the private equity and hedge funds aren't liquid. 
for the most part, right? So right. it was kind of a perfect storm. You know, we proposed some ideas in the book of how people can replicate the endowments, but also use things such as trend following to be able to move to cash during the long bear markets that we think work great, but probably something that an endowment for various reasons can't or doesn't want to do. Um, and they, th- you know, that the biggest problem in 08, 09 was the the illiquidity. You had a paper that came out before the financial crisis titled A Quantitative Approach to Tactic- Tactical Asset Allocation, which essentially said, hey, this isn't rocket science, science, just use a 10-month 10 10 month moving average, and that's your warning sign to get aggressively defensive. We- could, could big endowments... Actually, follow that with their liquid investments. They could easy, and they could do it with futures. They don't because it's a philosophical and mindset, but it's also a big business career risk, right? So if you're hedging and the hedging doesn't work, if you look at say since '09 to about last year, a lot of the trend following programs really struggled. They've done great in the last year, right? But but it's it's a it takes a philosophical mindset to be able to look at it. I mean, the funny thing is, trend following is nothing new. It's been around over 120 years. Dow theory, right? Was was people were talking about it in early 20th century, but it works, and it 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 doesn't work for usually the the reasons people think, and that it's some massive return generating engine. It, usually, it works by reducing volatility, reducing drawdown. But that's really the number one rule of investing or trading. It's to live to. To trade another day, to to, to survive, right? To, to not engage in behavior that either a destroys your capital. Um, uh, the the uh, Bill Gross talked about, you know, uh, the gambler's um, risk that you can't completely destroy your your seed capital. And then, of course, you mentioned career risk. And Paul Tudor Jones I was listening to an interview with him where he said. If he had to use one indicator, it'd be the 200-day moving average. If he just had to look at one thing, and that's just a great example of how, you know, it's a very simple indicator, but it can help you be on the right side of the market and certainly to to survive. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Meb Faber. He's the CIO of Cambria Investments. And before the break, we talked a little bit about how the financial services industry is being disrupted. Let, let's discuss that a little bit. What do you see as the big disruptors? So we started out managing hedge funds at our firm back in 07 and individual accounts. And we eventually moved into launching our own ETFs. And one of the reasons why is we think it's a great structure for the individual. And look, Wall Street's been selling various products forever, right? Uh, but this is one of the best and cleanest that doesn't have a lot of the baggage of old mutual funds that were sold to people, right? So a lot of the fees, the 12B1 fees, the various loads, you know, aren't a part of the ETF structure. It's easy. Usually it's just a management fee. And so we started, we thought it was a great way for people to be able to access the strategies, you know, we wanted to launch. Um, There's a lot of other great stuff going on. The automated investing solutions being put out by Vanguard or Schwab or firms like yours, you know, are wonderful ways to be able for individuals to invest with with having a rules-based approach and not being able to left to their own devices of being able to, to do the really dumb stuff that costs them a lot of money. So you're seeing a lot of different great things going on uh, that we're pretty excited about. We call that dumb stuff the behavior gap. Mm-hmm. And that shows up in all of the annual return data that shows how individuals radically underperform um, even a simple 60-40 portfolio 
they're not capable of keeping up with it. So you've cranked out a number of different ETFs. There are a few that are really interesting. Before we talk about the specific ETFs, let's talk about that process. What's it like creating and then getting an ETF approved in trading? So I have a couple criteria that we, we use when we launch an ETF. It has to be something I want to put my own money into. Mm-hmm. So I have 100% of my net worth invested in these funds. It obviously has to be different than what's out there already. So Vanguard, State Street, these guys can do and have launched hundreds of funds that are great for a certain asset class, just an exposure. So we'll never copycat that, right? Um, and it has to be something that people also want, right? So there has to be a demand out there. And, and, and the biggest is it has to be something that we think works or is unique. So, um, but the process, you got you have to get SEC approval to be able to launch ETFs. I think this will change eventually. As a company or yeah, per so you, ETF you or need, both? No, across the board, you need to get an exemption to launch ETFs. And that take it took us about 14 months. And it's- For exp- the first one. It's expensive. That's just getting allowing you to play in the sandbox, right? right? That will change at some point. I don't care how long it takes now, because now that we have it, it's more of a moat, right? Like right. SEC can just continue to have a backlog. I don't care. <laughs> But it's a shame. They'll, they'll figure it out eventually so that they, people can launch funds more similar to, to uh, mutual funds. And so um, once you have that permission, then you can get a fund out if it's fairly plain vanilla. It's nothing crazy, triple leverage derivatives in about three months. So we've launched five. We have four more queued up uh, that we'd like to get out. But we have a little bit different approach. You see a lot of the ETF shops will do the shotgun. They'll throw everything against the wall, see what sticks, see what the market likes. And hopefully the people will chase returns. But but we like. I've to th- watched the. I've so let me jump in here. I've watched you launch ETFs. They invariably start with a white paper where you describe philosophically and quantitatively what you're hoping to accomplish. Then the fun comes out, and then you uh, do a, a follow up paper. So let's talk about one as an example. And I happen to have your book shareholder yield here. So so let's begin with that. Tell us what shareholder yield is and how that morphed into an ETF. Shareholder yield is a concept that people have been writing about for a long time. So it's it's nothing new. Uh, O'Shaughnessy you mentioned his book. He's been t- he took the theory back to the twenties, but it basically says, look, if companies can distribute their cash flow, which investors love, it makes no sense to just look at dividends or buybacks. Really, it's the holistic cross between the two that investors care about is how much are you paying me? Because they're exact, they're the exact same thing if a company's trading at intrinsic value. Explain that. How are dividends, which is a check I get quarterly, the same as a share buyback, which I don't notice in my monthly portfolio? Right. So you end up owning a larger percentage of the company. It just it reduces the share count. You have a higher percent equity ownership. And earnings per share then, then go up. So the stock appears cheaper at that point. And so all the research has shown, and, and what, you've, what you find is there was a structural shift in the early 80s. Uh, there, there were some tax law changes. There were some um, provisions that made it easier for companies to uh, have safe harbor to buy back their own stock. So what you've seen since the 80s is each year more and more, and the, the kink was right around 97, where share buybacks constitute a higher percent payout than than dividends do. And so you have to look at it. Histori- we think looking at either dividends alone or buybacks, it's the same mistake. You need to look at both. Apple's a great example, right? Where they have a 2% dividend yield, but hey, they also have this buyback yield. 
And one of the problems with dividend investing, and there's a lot, is that for for one example, you could have a company paying a two or three percent dividend yield, but they're also you know picking your pocket by issuing three or four percent a year in new stock. A lot of tech companies do this, right? Cisco was notorious for this. Their share count just crept up over the years. So, so you're actually getting a negative yield if you think about it correctly. So if you go back and back test it, that shows up. The shareholder yield companies do much better uh, than, than either dividends or buybacks alone. So we, we've been writing about this since 06 and was shocked that no one had launched a fund and said, look, I really want to be able to invest in this. It doesn't exist. There's some mutual funds, but they're twice as expensive as what we do. So I said, let's, let's launch a simple fund. And so we put that out a couple years ago. It's- so let's, let's mention it's the shareholder yield ETF is SYLD. And then there's the foreign shareholder yield ETF FYLD, does the math work the same for foreign companies as does for U.S.? It works the same. There's not as much of a culture of buybacks yet in a lot of countries. It's but changing. But more of a dividend culture. Right. More of a dividend culture. So, for example, if you're doing a shareholder yield portfolio here in the U.S., you may end up with, on aggregate, let's call it a 2% dividend yield, but maybe a 6% buyback yield. So you're getting up around a high single-digit yield, right? That's great. If you look at the S&P right now, you you have maybe a 2% yield, a little lower now, but no net buyback, right? So you're, it's a 6% delta. That's amazing because there have been so many major, you know, you see the big buybacks like the Apples and the Microsofts and the Intels, but you forget about uh, everybody else's. And this is why the buyback indices and the shareholder yield have been creaming the dividend indices for the past couple of years is because the buyback yield amount is much higher than the dividend yield amount. And one really quick point is that any factor, so it's called dividends or buybacks, goes in and out of favor. So if you remember back to late 90s, no one wanted dividend stocks, right? right? You couldn't right. sell someone one. That was the best, fattest pitch to invest in dividend stocks ever. So what's happened since then, right? People have flooded into dividend stocks in the search for yield. And dividends work historically because they traded a discount, a value discount to the overall market. But that varies. So in 99, it was the highest it's ever been, 50% discount to the overall market. Uh-huh. In 2007, 2008, or, it's, or maybe it's even more recent, 2010, 2011, dividend stocks traded at a premium to the overall market. So you're getting these junkier co- companies, but now that are more expensive. And that's one of the reasons that if you look at any factor, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's terrible. On aggregate, it works out. But that's why dividends have really struggled the past couple of years. They simply got too expensive. If you look at the largest dividend ETF, it has a lower yield than the S&P. We're speaking with Meb Faber of Cambria Investments about some of the ETFs his firm has created. What's the typical number of holdings in these domestic and overseas uh, dividend yielding ETF? Shareholder yield. So it's 100 stocks in each. Yeah. And so like Cliff talked about in one of your your earlier podcasts is that, you know, quants love breadth diversification, Mm -hmm. right? But but it's a fine line between wanting to be concentrated enough to be different. So to allow potential outperformance over the market cap benchmark, but also diversified enough that you are getting... Um, some diversification across sectors and companies and any one company doing poorly. And I would imagine this sort of uh, ETF has been doing well on attracting assets the past well, few it, years. It's technically the largest active equity ETF out there. It's an active fund. I mean, that's kind of like saying you're the best, you have the home run record for trip, you know, single A baseball, <laughs> right? But um, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a clean, basic strategy that we think... Uh, has a lot of appeal, certainly, certainly right now. How how often do the constituents change within the ETF? You do it once a quarter. Oh, so it's it's 
active but not right. hyperactive. Right. And let's talk about um, you recently came out with an ETF that has no internal fee structure. But before we talk about that, what's the internal expenses on the domestic and overseas uh, ETFs? We, we try to get most of them right around the average ETF expense ratio, which is around 0.59%. The mm-hmm. foreign are a little more for holding fees, 069 uh, but that's that's the highest you'll ever see out of us. But now the, people don't see that. It just comes out of the total return. Mm-hmm. But you produced a new global ETF that has no internal expense ratio. Tell, tell us about that. You know, look, we said, and I've been writing about this since 06, 07, and said, look, I have no problem with buy and hold investing. We talked about it in the Ivy portfolio. It's a great way to invest if that's how your emotional makeup is set. So we looked at 15 of the best guru portfolios around the world and found that even though they're really different, shockingly, the performance over the last 40 years is pretty close to each other, mainly because they all had a little of each. And so we wanted to say, look, we'll offer the global portfolio but for a 0% management fee, we end up making a little because it owns some of our own ETFs. But the total expense ratio, is it's the cheapest asset allocation ETF out there, is 0.29%. That, that's amazing. We've been speaking with Mebane Faber of Cambria Investments. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure to check out the rest of it. You can find that podcast on Bloomberg.com or at Apple iTunes. Be sure and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com or follow me on twitter at ritholtz i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio welcome back to the show this is the podcast portion of our interview where we uh, let our hair down a little bit and have some fun with our guests uh before we continue on with our questions i really have to you know let people know meb and i know each other for um, a good couple of years, we've we've wreaked some havoc in some restaurants and bars uh, in L.A. as and and not too long ago here in New York, um, somebody described uh, our last outing as the Justice League of Finance. It was you, me, um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy of of OSAM, Josh Brown, reform broker, um, Mike Batnick, a relevant investor. Uh, J.C. Peretz of All-Star Charts, there were about a, a, a dozen people out. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name from uh, from Wisdom Tree. Jeremy Schwartz. Jeremy, really nice guy, really interesting stuff. Morgan Housel uh, of Motley Fool in the Wall Street Journal was out with us. It was really a lot of fun, and that ran. Uh, I understand people went out after I went home. People went out to dinner and stayed out uh, pretty late having a little bit of uh Ongoing financial debate. If if I had known you were buying the happy hour, I probably would have had a few more beers than than I did. But but it's it's good that at least the the, the comments weren't that we were the supervillains of finance. That's right. right. And and by the way, the secret to picking up the tab at happy hour is just not to tell anyone. Right. Then when the check comes, it's actually fairly uh, fairly reasonable. So. Early on, you described when you were doing um, bio and biotech work that you were slowly attracted to finance. H- how did that transition happen? What what was it about money and the management of money that made you say, well, biotech is fascinating, but really the asset management side is, is intriguing? You know, I mean, like many investors, I grew up chatting with my father and my mom about investing and both had very different styles right you look at mom she said meb you just buy and hold and hold forever 
And in retrospect, looking back now, I say, well, of course that makes sense. Your investing career was mostly in the 80s and 90s, right? It made sense to just buy and hold and forget it. If she was a housewife in Japan in 1990, she probably wouldn't have had that same philosophy. Not at all. And so, you know, so she, uh, and not to mention her father worked at RJ Reynolds, one of the best performing stocks of our generation. And my father was an aerospace guy, so his was a little more um, specific. He tried to do domain knowledge in the areas he knew about. But but like I mentioned earlier, had many of the same um, but different behavioral biases. He would never sell. So often, for example, things would you know watch it go all the way. Through. So it had a culture of learning about investing growing up and then started to do it on your own. And the lesson that many traders learn at some point, and hopefully early when they don't have much money, is blowing up at some point, right. you know, losing all your money. And that's a very painful but beneficial process. And as we see this year six, seven bull market coming, and there's so many people out there who have never lived through one, you know, the pain of losing money is very real. It's it's a very physical pain, especially um, when you have a big loss, 30, 50, 60, 100 percent. Um, but until you've lived through it, it's hard to describe that to someone. The the line I began on a trading desk, and the thing that I used to hear all the time was about new traders. Oh, the worst thing that can happen to him is he makes money. Suddenly, you think it's easy. And I started in the mid '90s, and if you weren't putting up 50% a year numbers, you were a bum. And people thought that was normal. When you ask people, "What are you looking for next year?" Oh, I'm looking to double my money. Really? What are the odds that you're going to do that? Well, in, in people, we talked about this in one of our first papers, they use a different part of the brain when they're making money and losing money. You're making money, you're thinking about your vacations, how smart you are, can't wait to tell your friends, you're checking your balance 10 times a day on online. When you're losing money, you don't open your account statements in the mail. You're so angry at your neighbor or broker for recommending that app company. You know, you it's it's the flight response, right? So it's a totally different... It's emotional, uh, so so is the making money, but it's more of the neocortex. The limbic system is the loss system, which is, I think you gave a speech to uh, a Google talk. Is that right? And you talk about a lot of the same um, behavioral economics and neurofinance stuff I like to talk about. What kept you alive on the savanna doesn't help you in, in identifying risk and managing losses at all. If anything, it sends you running in the wrong direction. And it creates opportunities, of course. It makes markets that you know create bubbles, which I love from, mm-hmm. a, from a standpoint of an asset manager. You did a white paper on bubbles. What was the title of that? Um, learning to Love Investment Bubbles. Right, which, uh, was, which is actually a fun white paper, a phrase that's not spoken often. And the subtitle, What If Sir Isaac Newton would, Was a Trend Follower? But what you find in <laughs> bubbles across history is that they've been happening forever. And we go back a couple hundred years and you find them in various places. You know, the past decade has created uh, the vernacular bubble. Everyone talks about bubbles now. And bubble in bubbles. They're pretty rare, right? You know, we had talked a lot about Bitcoin, for example, recently being having a lot of bubble type of behavior, speculative behavior. But one of the things, if you apply a trend-following methodology and look at them historically, it's great because it has an exit that allows you to hopefully live to play another day, right? Instead of the psychological and real pain of losing 70 80 90% in a, in a drawdown in a bubble. But what you find is that as people lose money, when they're below the trend, volatility is so much higher, mm-hmm. right? So volatility explodes to the both up and downside. So all of the best and worst days occur, not all, but two thirds, 70%. 
occur after markets have already been declining, and that's simply because they're more volatile. So if you can avoid those periods uh, by having a trend-following approach, it makes life a lot easier. And and here's a little bit of an anecdotal data point that I'd love to do some deep research on. I can't help but notice that when entire sectors fall about 80% or so, that's a pretty uh, attractive entry point. You look at the Nasdaq.com uh, bubble fell 80%. You look at the real estate bubble, the, the publicly traded stocks dropped about that much. And then you look at the banks in that space. I'm not suggesting you try and catch any one falling knife, but buying a whole sector that's down 80%, just so long as it's not your leather belt and steam sector, um, isn't a bad entry point. So we've actually run some studies on that. And the empirical data shows that in actuality, yes, it, it usually is a pretty great idea. The challenge, of course, you can't do this with an individual stock because they can go to zero. right? right? As, but if as you, we've seen all too many times. If you buy best. a big enough basket of whether it's a sector or a country, in general, yes, it's a great time to be buying it the further it goes down. But there's you go back to the old famous investing joke, what do you call something down 90%? That's something that was down 80%, then went down <laughs> another 50%. Got cut in half. Exactly. So you can, and the reason we talk a lot about this is because the drawdowns often correlate very highly with value. Value is nothing more, in most cases, than something that's just already gone down 50, 60, 80%. So if you look at the way the world exists today, there's a lot of countries out there that are cheap, but they're cheap like Greece or Russia or, you know, and getting cheaper. And get, so one, there's a lot of risk because they can get cheaper. But two, uh, they're simply cheap because the P and the PE, right? It's not the earnings that's changing. It's the price. And so they've already declined 50, 60, 70, 80 percent. But that's what generates a lot of opportunity. Mm hmm. That, that's really interesting. When you look around the world, let's talk a little bit about valuation, um, because by many measures, stocks in the U.S., uh, if, depending on what you want to use as a, as a valuation tool, you could cherry-pick valuations that say stocks are cheap. You can certainly cherry-pick valuations that say stocks are expensive. Merrill Lynch puts out a whole uh, spectrum of, of valuation analysis. And it's hard to look at that and not say stocks at best aren't fully valued in the U.S. Here's the challenge with the Merrill Report, and I've seen that, is that you have to have a consistent start period that's long enough for enough history. And none of them are more than 20 years. And, and the Merrill Report compares many certain indicators, which haven't existed for a long time, so it, take it for you know grain of salt, but some haven't, have only existed since... 2000 or 1990. Well, the majority of that period has been a, been very bubblicious, right? So it's like an example if you're only looking at Japan from 1970 to 1990 or 2000. Well, almost the entire period was the biggest bubble we've ever seen. So if you take any value in, in, in value indicators, they're blunt tools, right? Mm -hmm. In general, you want them to line up on the same side. So usually they say the same thing. It doesn't matter if you use Schiller's 10-year P.E. ratio, so CAPE, or whether you use you know, market cap to GDP or Tobin's Q. We tweeted out a stat the other day that the median stock in the S&P 500 back to 1960 is at the highest price-to-sales ratio it's ever been. It's like 2.1, right? The average over time is 0.9. So in my belief is that I think U.S. stocks are expensive. I don't think it's a raging bubble, uh, but being a quant, the boring thing to say is that, well, it just means future 
returns are going to be lower. Expected returns are going to be below average expected we, returns. We look at it like low single digits. I don't think they're negative yet. And at the point they go negative, that's what I start to call bubble. But mm-hmm. that's really for Cape, for example. I love, I love, I have to interrupt you. I love Cliff Asness's definition of a bubble, which I'm going to paraphrase, which is there is no reasonable uh, or reasonably foreseeable course of events that generate a positive return from these price levels. And the the key is reasonable. And that's great, because if you look at history, let's say a historical CAPE ratio is 17 to 20. It's been as high as 45 in the U.S. It's been as low as 5. So you can make the case that, hey, look, stocks could easily double from here, and the only reason is because that's what people are willing to pay. Who knows? Uh, Elon Musk could invent cold fusion. You know, I make lots of things like, what could happen? Who knows? Is he working on that now? (laughs) Shh, be quiet. So... (laughs) You know, but in Japan they hit a, a ratio of almost a hundred. But that's it's simply a hundred. The Cape ratio is a hundred. It's the highest we've ever seen, right? That's amazing. And there's a reason that there's been lost decades. People are always saying no, it's because they were not competitive, or that uh, you know the demographics were bad. Well, yes, those are all true, but it's because they're working off the largest bubble we've ever seen. Which the bigger it is, the longer it takes. Uh, takes right. You, right? Uh, bubbles. All what all that bubbles do is they pull forward future years and decades of returns. So after the bubble collapses, hey, you've already gotten the past 10 years of gains. You just have to get through that before you're even starting to unwind. So in the U.S., it took from the 99 bubble, it took to 08 to get back to even. So eight years. But Japan took you know decades, right? And the, the irony is they finally got to a cheap valuation a couple years ago. And what happened? They were the best performing equity market in the world, right? So, But, but here's my whole takeaway. So that's the bad news. The U.S. is expensive. Um, but the good news is most of the world is cheap and Europe Europe fairly and, cheap and much of the world is incredibly cheap so emerging markets very um, cheap so even just buying emerging or developed markets you're getting a valuation ratio of around 15 US is at 27 right so and half the world by market cap is foreign 80% of the world by GDP is foreign. So at a minimum, you should have 50% in foreign. But if you want to get really interesting, you know, we go and buy the cheapest 11 countries in the world, but you're buying the junkiest of the junk. You're buying Russia, Brazil, and then almost all of Europe, right? right. You know, Poland, Southern Europe Czech especially. Republic. Yeah, Greece, Italy, Spain. And at some point with valuations, cheap gets too cheap. But, the, but here's the funny thing is that the geopolitics and the news flow is always terrible right and but the names change if you go back a few years you know norway was going through a, a banking crisis late 90s sweden yeah right so late 90s it was um the asian countries in the early 80s it was the us so the names kind of come in and out of favor it's a tough strategy for me emotionally i'm not built to be a great deep value guy so i allocate to it knowing that hey this only rebounds is once a year Right, you could even rebalance it once every two years because these deep value strategies, like the one you mentioned earlier about stuff that's down eighty percent, those are usually great buying opportunities. But you got to give them time to work. You know, it's funny you mentioned the rebalancing. We've done a lot of work on that and shifted from a more frequent rebalancing to a less frequent because we found that the rebalancing clearly generates net positive returns over time, but the tax implications and the costs of rebalancing aren't worth to do it as as there are people who rebalance monthly, quarterly. We looked at a number of different things and pretty much came up randomly rebalancing once a year uh, based on either a fixed time in the year or when a specific uh, account was opened and money was deployed. 
seems to be the most efficient, effective way. We, we've always said, and it matters even less, the more assets you have that, that don't correlate, but say a great global portfolio, we always say, look, you should rebalance, it's important, but at some point, you could even rebalance every three or five years, and it's not going to make much of a difference. One year is great because it gives you, one, the better tax treatment for long-term holdings, yeah. but also it's nice to have sort of a one-year review, right. right? So, hey, we can go do this. But you can do it based on tolerance bands. We always tell people if it's in a taxable account, hey, rebalance into, you get some a money or a bonus or a salary, put it into the stuff that's down the most. You got to take money out for a house, take it out of what's appreciated the most. But yeah, it, it doesn't matter that much as long as you do it at some point. Makes a lot of sense. You know, you mentioned the news flow. Um, I, I'm pretty sure you know who Laszlo Barini is. His firm puts together a book every quarter of all the major media stories about markets, stocks, major news items, the economy. And when you read them with the benefit of hindsight, they're utterly hilarious. You go through these screaming headlines, these front page stories, and you could see in hindsight how people make bad emotional decisions. They, what looks like the most important thing ever turns out to be an irrelevant blip three months later. Well, it's hard because and you look back at some of the academic studies where they sort countries into you know trailing GDP. And ironically, you want the countries that have the worst GDP trailing. So you're investing in stuff that looks the most miserable. But you know, has already become the most inexpensive. Right. So, you know, same thing. You want the ones with the worst currency returns. And, and those are things you don't, I mean, it's hard to invest in things that are doing terrible. It's much easier to invest in the company, you know, that's beating earnings and that's, that's doing wonderful. Feels great. Feels much better, right? But it's it's harder to do. And, you know, I give these talks where I say, look, you know, the, the biggest problem, you listen to this and then want to go buy Russia or Greece while Russia's invading the Ukraine, while Greece is talking about leaving the euro, everything that's going on. Um, and then you go tell your husband or wife or your client, hey, I got this great idea. This is what we're going to do. Massive career risk, right? Because if it goes down, you know, and they do worse, you're going to get fired. If they do a little bit better, okay, great. But it, it's it's a challenging and one of the reasons it works. Um, if you look at Russia, one of the best performing equity markets in the world this year. Now, they were probably the worst last year. Right. But uh, it's it's tough. It's always tough to be, you know, one of the our favorite um Templeton quotes was always that he said, don't tell me where things look the best. Tell me where things, that's the wrong question. Tell me where things look the most miserable. Well, that's, I call that the uh factor. And I tell stories about Apple in the early 2000s. I got my hands on one of the, uh, I apologize to listeners, they've heard the story before. <laughs> I was a Mac fanboy for many years. I got invited to an Apple event where they were rolling out, this is before Apple events were events, they're rolling out this newfangled iPod, and I missed it. And so I contact somebody I knew at Apple, and I get a, a, an obnoxious email back from the PR department. We're not giving any press iPod reviews. A, I'm not a member of the press, or certainly wasn't at the time, and B, I just want to know where I could go see this. And they write me back. You could go to the Apple store. There's one in Albany. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> the closest Apple store was three hours away from New York City. So I knew people there, and I responded to them and copied a bunch of people I knew. Hey, listen, I want to review the product. I'll mail it back to you. Just get me one. And the next day, a FedEx box arrived, and I had it. 
And at the time, pre not counting splits, and there have been two for one and seven for one, at the time it was $15 with 13 cash. Hey, this is the new Sony Walkman for the next generation. I remember saying this to people, you're risking $2. They have 13 cash, it's 15 bucks, Or really about $2, you know, or a dollar after pre-split. And the response universally was, ugh. The same response you get about, I want to put money into Russia, I want to put money into Greece. Ugh. And I catch myself doing it. Someone said to me not too long ago, hey, you should buy some Dell down here. It's cheap. And my response was, ugh. Oh, wait. Uh, usually is a good thing. Let me take a look at it. Well, and Apple's interesting because um, you almost have the opposite scenario now, and it's maybe not the best example because it's, it's still cheap and it's got because a lot it's of cash. because it's cheap and a ton of cash and it's distributing it. So, full disclosure, you know, we own it. But however, if you look at the historical studies, uh, you had Rob on the show where his firm says, "Look, the biggest company in the S and P five hundred." underperforms that index for the next 10 years by about right. 3% a year. Same thing happens in sectors, and that's just capitalism, right? Although that hasn't been true the past two years since it became the biggest company. Right. So, you know, Apple's now up to 4% of the S&P 500, and usually that's been a graveyard for other companies really? once they hit that 4% mark. Because what happens? You know, there's companies in Asia say, you know what? We're going to make phones, too. And, and knock them off, and that's what they're doing in make, China. And, and so, historically... But it's just creative destruction, right? It's capitalism, right. and that's the beauty of it. But but it's funny because if you look at Apple right now, it's the exact flip side of when you saw it. So, right, it's it's there's no reasons almost not to invest in Apple, right? It's they're coming out with the world changing products. I own, I'm looking at my iPhone, I own, you know, probably half a dozen different Apple things. Um, but it's it's much Are you easier get the now. Watch or you know, I, maybe probably I'm you know I'm a gadget nerd, so I'll, I'll, I'm an early adopter. But I'm I'm not a huge watch guy, so the thought of having to charge it every day, um, I, I'll end up losing it. So if I do, I'll get the whatever the cheapest version is. See, I, I've learned to get the second generation everything, mm -hmm. um, to say the least. But I had worked with a, a technician many years ago who used to say to me. Beware of three things. Beware of a stock that's had an enormous run, that has huge institutional ownership, and has tremendous analyst strong buy coverage. And that probably has described Apple for, for quite some time. The question is, they disrupted music. They disrupted uh, the computer space with tablets. They disrupted the phone space with the iPhone. They've disrupted a number of industries Will the watch be disruptive for wearables and everything else, or is it going to be really a peripheral product that isn't? Look, you know, the phone itself is bigger than 90% of the S&P 500 companies, just the revenue for the iPhone. And people talk about the iPad as it's fading, it's not selling as strong as... It's a $27 billion a year product. How many companies generate $27 billion a year in sales? Even like their weakest product is a monster. Can they continue doing it is really the key question. And there's a great chart that shows that if you just buy the biggest company in the S&P versus the S&P, you know, back to the 70s, I think Ned Davis puts it out and it's a massive underperformance, but you know it's had all the names, uh, Walmart, Microsoft, right, Microsoft, Exxon, right, Exxon over time and it's usually been a terrible thing to do, but but not always, Did right? Cisco ever make its yep. biggest in S&P? I think Cisco I remember when we were talking about Cisco, this is in the late 90s, the first trillion dollar company well, it's funny because if you look at the composition of markets, you know, the late 90s bear market or early 2000s bear market 
was a very different bear market than the 2008-2009 because it was a very concentrated market cap bubble in the most expensive tech names, right? So if you had the average stock or even dividend stocks, many didn't even have a bear market 2000-2003, but market cap weighted so the S&P did because that had so much and this is one of the problems in market cap weighting why it's so I mean it, it's a great first you know, invention, but it's not the best way to weight uh, an index. And so you could weight it by almost anything else, and you end up with a better portfolio. So the- that, that's really uh, that's really Rob Arnott's philosophy. I'm going to do this by memory, so I'm sure these numbers are wrong. 2000, we saw the Nasdaq fall just under 80 percent. I want to say 78, 79 percent. The S and P 500 which had a lot of the Nasdaq stocks, ended up dropping about 35%. And I think the Dow was about 30%, but that's just by memory. There was a huge gap between the broad market and the sectors that was tech, telecom, um, and, and online. But let's talk a little bit about what you just mentioned in terms of weighting portfolios, not by the size of the market cap, but by some other fundamental factor, what uh, Arnott does at Rafi is come up with a variety of different ways to weight a portfolio. And for those of you who haven't listened to the Arnott podcast, it, take a look. It's four inches below this one. You should absolutely um, download that and listen to it. He talks about using factors like earnings, like sales growth, like book value, and putting them into the context of what is the footprint of this company within the broad economy? And he had a great paper that not only said, if you take these metrics that are not cap, but sales, dividend yield, revenue growth, go down the whole whole run of this, profitability, not only is that a better way to create an index than a, than a market cap, but the inverse of those turn out to be better than market cap. Well, that's the thing is that almost anything other than market cap works fine, right? So there was the joke someone made. It may have been Rob. I can't remember. Is it like you could sort it by the CEOs that wear ties or bow ties, and that will outperform the S and P. So anything equal weighting, you know, obviously we like shareholder yield, but any way you weight it will beat the S and P by let's call it one or two percent historically, because you're not overweighting the expensive stuff. And so at he- the end of that cycle, at the end of the run. Pat- by the way, Patrick O'Shaughnessy put a portfolio together. He said, only pick companies that begin with the letter C. Right. And it beats market cap. And you can actually pick any letter, and it still beats market and, cap. And this is a there's a great example of this right now, not in the U.S., because what's happened in the U.S. is the spread of valuations have condensed. So small caps last year got to one of the most expensive they've ever been relative to large caps. But that's come in. They had a terrible year last year relative to large cap. So that spread is narrowed. But you've had the all of the U.S. market get more expensive. So it doesn't have the huge range like 99. But what you do have, you look at the global market cap portfolio, the largest chunk is the U.S. at half. Well, what's one of the most expensive? It's the U.S. So it's the same sort of phenomenon, but now on a global stage. So our thesis is you could weight the global portfolio by anything as long as you're moving away from the U.S. and it will likely outperform in the coming years. but it doesn't even matter how. But so that's the problem with market cap by definition is what's getting more expensive because the price is going up is going to be the biggest chunk of that of that portfolio. So you mentioned um, career risk. We run a broad asset allocation that's global in nature. And every year for the past three years, the conversation goes something like 
like this. So here's our, our portfolio, and here's how it's done. It's done pretty well versus its benchmark. It's a pretty typical 70-30 portfolio. Uh, what's done really well has been the U.S. stocks. And, oh, look at the bonds. They've done really well. Corporates have done well. Treasuries have done well. Now let's talk a little bit about our emerging market holdings and our developed nation holdings. They continue to lag, and it's an annual conversation, and it always ends with, Look, all we can do is rely on history, and history says over time they're going to reverse. But how long can we continue to have this conversation with clients before they go, that's it, I'm all in on the S&P 500, I don't want to own anything else? Well, that'll probably be the, the, turning, the, top, the tipping right. point, right? right. The, and there's that classic chart where the periodic table in investing returns, right? right? Where each year you show how everything bounces around. But right there in the middle is is the asset allocation portfolio. Never the best, never the worst, but kind of right there in the middle. And kind of like we mentioned before, it doesn't even matter how much uh, of the dials. I mean, when we looked at these in our new book, 15 different portfolios based on the most famous investors. And if you exclude permanent portfolio, because that's Got a lot. It's got a twenty five percent cash allocation, so it's lower volatility, which is, which is really kind of right. goofy, right? So, if, but if you look at the other fifteen, it's you know portfolios by Dalio, by Arnott, all these recommendations over the years, Mark Faber, um, they cluster. They're all within about a percent and a half of each other, right? So they now it's, some do much better in various market environments. So the ones that had a huge allocation to inflationary type of assets, real assets in the 70s, so like Mark Faber has 25% in gold, that's going to do much better in the 70s, but much worse in the 80s and 90s, right? right. So they typically balance and great out- great in the 2000s and terrible this decade. So they typically balance out over time, because, but that's the point of an asset allocation, is you want asset classes that balance each other out in any market environment. So whether we have deflation, inflation, disinflation, growth, recessions going forward, you want something that, that the mix will balance that out. And it shockingly doesn't matter that much what the percentages are um, of the allocation, but rather that you stick to it, don't pay huge amounts of fees. Those are the two big ones. You talk about that periodic table of... Uh asset classes, Howard Marks says something really fascinating about not trying to be in the top 10% or even top 2%. He said his goal is to be in the top 40%, I'm paraphrasing, somewhere in the top 40%. And if you do that consistently over time, you end up in the top decile. Because the guys who are top decile any given year are usually shooting the lights out. And that means the year before and the year after, they're getting shellacked. Well, because often they're exposed to either some sort of factor or some sort of style that will have those years of runs or, or bad, good performance and bad. I mean, if you look at the dollar-weighted returns of mutual funds versus the time-weighted by Morningstar, and they show this every year where because people chase the performance of the good funds and then they get out after they, they do very poorly, they always lag the actual returns of the managers. I think the best performing manager in the 90s was um, maybe Ken Hebner's fund, CGM, right? Uh -huh. And so, but if you look at the dollar weighted returns, when people came in, they came in after he had, you know, a 60, 70% year run. Then he has a 60, 70% drawdown. Everyone pukes it back up. They get out of it. And, and the 60, 70% up is at 100 million, and the down is at 2 billion. And so if you look at over the whole period, yeah, he actually had great returns, one of the better managers. But if you look at the returns of the investors, it's horrific, right? Because they came in at the wrong points. But, but that's the challenge, right? One of the lessons we'll often tell investors is say, look, all right, 
I want you to look back in the last three and five years, pick the worst performing asset classes. That's probably where we want to be tilting. Think about how bad that feels. Right. Like, oh my God, last thing I want to be investing in is commodities and emerging markets right now. But historically, that's been one of the better places to be. But that's why it's so hard, right? No one wants to invest in the manager that's that's really, or the style or the asset class that's really struggling. You'd much rather be investing in things that are hitting all new time highs. You know, I was at a conference at the Kennedy School. It was the Hauser Institute for Responsible Investing. And I, I, I apologize to whoever I'm stealing this from. Maybe it was Simon Lack, um, who wrote a book called The Hedge Fund Mirage. But he talked about, or whoever this person was, talked about dollar-weighted returns versus um, uh, the annual-rated returns. And I think the person he used as an example was the John Paulson Fund. Now, Paulson is famous for a phenomenal bet during the financial crisis against mortgages that netted him $5 billion personally. But when he began that process, he was a relatively small firm. By the time he came out of the financial crisis, um, he was a pretty decent-sized firm. And a few years later, he was like a, a thirty-five or forty-five billion dollar firm. And at that point, at forty-five billion dollars, he lose one of his funds loses thirty percent, which is more than he made um, previously. So when you look at it on a dollar weighted average, it's a debacle. When you look at it at a return weighted average, oh well, this was just a bad year. And, and this is, you know, goes to show that institutions are no better than individuals when it comes to emotions and, and who they allocate to often and, and the, their process for it. You know, hedge funds in general have a, the biggest problem being they charge a lot, the two and 20 fees. That's, right? a, that's a heavy, heavy bogey to overcome. So many of the hedge fund, what's beautiful about where we're investing now, many of the hedge fund style strategies you can now allocate to an ETF form or mutual, mutual fund form. You know, one of my all-time favorite strategies, you know, managed futures, trend-following type of strategy. Uh, I think if you were to put together a portfolio, most people, that's the biggest part that's missing is a trend-following or managed futures style allocation. But the problem is most of those guys charge so much, right? So if you can get that allocation at a, at a lower cost, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful um active strategy that that has worked great historically. How does someone get exposure to that via an ETF? And, um, and when, when is your ETF for that coming out? Well, we may file for one, not because <laughs> I want to, um, because there's there's no better choices currently. Um, you know, the, There's a couple ETFs out there. They're all based on the same index, and the index is really suboptimal. For example, it doesn't short energy. Mm-hmm. So let's think about that for a minute. It's long short everything, but except for energy, because when they why post, is that? That's kind of crazy. Well, I'll tell you why. It's the number one classic mistake that quants and backtesters should make, which is fitting it to the period. So when the index came out, oils at what one twenty five, one fifty, right? So it's only gone one direction. So they said we're not going to short oil because of geopolitics. Well, of course, what happens? Oil <laughs> is now down to fifty, right? It's forty seven as of this recording. You know, a two thirds drop. And so managed futures, the whole point is that it's a strategy that will help protect you in various market environments, inflation or deflation. It's done great for the past year and a half, horrible three or four years before that. One of the few asset classes that really outperforms during big bear markets like an 08. So the ETFs are not ideal. There's some mutual funds that do it. Um, 
there's a couple good options, but still they're on the expensive side. AQR and Pimco both have funds out there that that we think are, are probably pretty good ideas. But but in general, this trend following approach, we think there's a lot of merit either whether you do it on your own or allocate to a, a trend style fund. So let me ask you the last few couple of questions that I have before we uh, have to send you back to California. Um, who are some of your favorite quants? Who do you who do you read? Who do you like? Who do you admire their approach to investing? Um, a lot of the ones we were probably at happy hour with last night, or you've had on the show. Uh, one of my all-time favorite quotes that I po- I tweeted about this the other day was actually from a um, one of the most famous quants of all time. You know, Jim Simons, uh, professor at Stony Brook. You know, mathematical genius runs Renaissance Technologies, right? Code breaker, right? And now retired. He's a he's an older fellow. I actually ran across him randomly on a hike in the woods in Get Long out. Island. I was at a wedding. Um, where and was that? Where, uh, it? It was near Stony Brook. Out so, in East Talkit is where and, is. you know, I, I, I nudged my girlfriend. And I said, I can't believe what we just saw. She says, Who's that? You know, who's that older guy? And I said, He's, you know, Jim Simon. She's like, Who's that? Right? And I was like, She's like, Go talk to him. I was like, What in the world am I going to go talk to him about in the woods? But, but he has a quote in this speech that has permeated a lot of my life and thinking about investing. Where at, you know, near the end of the speech, someone says, Hey, you know. I want some advice. Do you think, and I think they were talking about mathematics, but do you think I should study math in a very specific niche, so focus intensely, laser-like in this one area, or should I study a much broader perspective to be able to come up with you know, a, a more of a 10,000-foot view and be able to apply to any sort of discipline? He says, you know what? I can make the cliche either way. Mm-hmm. So meaning like, I could show that either case would work out, you know, good or bad. And so often when talking about people or people are giving advice or thinking about investing, I, you know, I often go back to this and say, hey, look, I can make this example work out almost either way. It's neither are certain. All you can do is come up with, you know, tilt towards expected realities and bets that are on your side. So in that same vein, you know, Ed Thorpe, classic. Um, beat, beat the dealer, beat, beat the, the market. dealer, beat the market. You know, one of the true, um, one of the most amazing fund performances for many years, Princeton Newport, uh, his fund, and, you know, a true quant. I mean, it was convertible ARB, I think. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those classic old school guys. And then there's a lot of people that, you know, are quant like but you wouldn't necessarily think about as, as quant. So um, those, those are uh, a lot of good ones. So, for people who don't know who Jim Simons is, um, he's now sort of retired. He was the code breaker in World War II, sort of the American version of Alan Turing. Um, he was the chairman of the mathematics department at Stony Brook. And had you met him, I was a applied mathematics and physics undergrad at, at Stony Brook. He was the outgoing math chairman as I was the incoming student. And if you met him, you wouldn't want to give him a dime. You would say, eh, scraggly beard, chain smoking. You would, you would, last person in the world, you would give money to, by most measures, the most successful hedge fund of all time was uh, the Medallion Fund of Renaissance. So successful that after a number of years, they said to their outside investors, here, take your money back. We don't have enough space for you. It's just going to be our money now. And- and that was after a four and forty fee, four percent a year management fee, forty percent performance, right? And so, they still outperformed everybody. And he had actually a great quote early in his career where he said something to the effect of, "You know, I started." You hear some crazy quotes where people are like, "I've never met a rich 
technician or essentially in my mind a rich quant right right which and is which is kind of insane it's insane because he says look i used to trade on you know fundamentals it gave me ulcers and we eventually <laughs> you know quantified everything and that was that but but it, you know goes to show look if you have an edge it it's it's you can you know print money and whatever that edge may be go right? down the list of quants john henry rob arnott uh cliff asness these guys are all uber successful billionaires or new, near billionaires and their funds and their investors have done exceedingly well the hard part it's easy to look back after 40 years and say hey renaissance was great but you go back to 1990 who's going to give money to this guy it is so much harder to pick the emerging managers than people realize hindsight is 2020 in the beginning it's an emotional thing and you know, quants aren't necessarily the most expressive, articulate Sorry. people. They tend to be math people, not language. But I think both Arnott and Asnes are really exceptions that they're both unusually articulate and have a, a way with words. I, I'm Both of them write fairly regularly, and they're both really, really good writers. Most, most of us are all just a bunch of nerds, and I can say that because I was an engineer. I can say that because I'm a quant. But, yeah, but I agree that the challenge— by far the biggest in quant is is trying to get come up with something long-term capital classic example right like a bunch of nobel laureates but overfitting their system over starting to believe too much in their own um you know abilities where the employees there were taking out loans to then invest in the company at whatever the leverage was 100 to 1 what what could really go wrong at 100 to 1 investing in in obscure paper issued by russian oligarchs it's it's almost how could that possibly blow almost up? always if you look back at a lot of the and there they weren't frauds they were just over leveraged but problems in financial and investing it it leveraged somehow and high fees are almost always permeate permeate the problem so yeah it's stay away stay away from 100 to 1 um to say the least next question what don't people understand about bonds and fixed income that you think they need to know um, what you've heard over the last five years certainly is there's a lot of misinformation. People are always saying bonds are in a bubble. And right. one of your pals, uh, Rosenberg, I remember hearing, I was at a breakfast, and he's like, you know- That's David Rosenberg, former chief economist at Merrill Lynch. He, um, he had a great quote where he said something to the extent of, hey, it's really hard for me to believe in a bubble when every, it's universally despised. Right. When everyone hates this <laughs> asset class, right? Bubble usually involves people clamoring hand over fist to invest in something. So, so, so bonds. It's it's a challenging asset class. You know, we think it's a. Uh, we look historically, and we have what's called a five two one rule. So this is net of inflation, ten thousand foot view. That's how much stocks, bonds, and short term, you know, bills have earned over history across 5 all markets. 5% a year, 2% a year, 1% a year? 5% on global stocks. You know, the U.S. was higher, of course, but it was one of the best performing markets of the 20th century. Bonds, it's really like one and a half, but I'm rounding. And then bills, maybe, you know, you'll break even or get, you know, half a percent. Really right? short-term paper, short-term cash paper. equivalents. But, and, and people, so when they're thinking about currencies and bonds and what happens, I mean, 
one of the biggest misinformation is also on the other side. Bonds have declined by 50% in the U.S. on a real basis. So, so their losses are more the slow bleed of inflation right. rather than the, the equities, which is usually a very sharp, long price move of you know one, two, three years. Bonds, you, ha- you have to look at real returns, not nominal returns. And what we call that in our new book is returns you can eat. But that's really all that matters because it's it's inflation inflation adjusted. I mean, inflation returns are, are just, it, it's meaningless, right? Right. So um, so looking at bonds from that standpoint, you know, they've had as, as big losses almost as equities. UK bonds have declined 60 percent on a real basis. However, usually they kind of zig and zag against a, a stock portfolio. It's not always the case. It's the correlation changes, you know, depending on where interest rates are. But um, it's a big part of a um, of a good asset allocation portfolio. And not just U.S. bonds. We think foreign, it's it surprises a lot of people, but the world's largest asset class is non-U.S. bonds, mm-hmm. right? So the biggest asset class out there is other foreign country bonds. And so we think it's it's an important part of an allocation. It's just, it's hard to get really excited about them in a world where, I mean, look at Europe. I mean, half a percent and Negative lower. yields. You have actually negative yields in a lot of uh, the Swiss and, and German bonds over the past month have been here, I'll give you this money. Give me most of it back when you're done. And so we've looked at sovereign bonds going back historically. And if you actually sort them based on yield, so the top maybe 20 or 40% actually do quite a bit better than the broad universe. Now, it ends up being a little more volatile. Drawdowns are comparable or even a little worse. But you end up adding some you know, 2% a year by investing in the high yield. The problem is, of course, it's the same thing with the problem with the cheap country uh, equity markets we were talking about earlier, is you end up in you know, really weird places that are... But you can end up with a 7% yield, 8% yield right now, but you're going to have to close your eyes and hold your nose and go buy you know, Brazilian, Pakistani type of bonds that are, that are yielding a little more. So let me ask you, I now come to my last question. Tell us what you know today that you wish you knew 10 or 20 years ago, that you wish you knew when you started out in the business. Well, this is always an interesting question, and it applies personally, too, as you look back at the times of, say, hardship, right? So I said, man, I really would love to have not bought that option straddle on a biotech stock, you know, waiting for phase two approval and then lost all my money when it happened, but, you know, then went right back to the strike price. Like, I would love to have not lost all that money, but however, how much of the drive and interest and nights spent reading books to learn was driven by that pain, right? So part of the journey. Part of the journey. And so I always look back and say, I, you know, I value the, the difficulties. I value the uh, the good and the bad times because they're learning expenses and, and wouldn't want to you know probably color it any other way. There's a lot of lessons that I'm glad to have learned. That's a big one. The, Such as what what lessons the, other than avoiding uh, butterfly straddles? The, the pain of the pain of losing is certainly one. Not putting all your eggs in one basket and risking everything. That's a huge one to to be able to play another day. Uh, not you know. Um, people often the overconfidence and understanding your own biases. You know, we every time I give a speech now, we'll talk about, you know, go around, sign a piece of paper. How much do you have in U.S. stocks? Every single one in the past 15 times, it's around 80 percent. And that's home country bias. So, and you could go to any country in the world, uh, even like the U.K., who's it's one thing where the U.S. is 50 percent of global market cap. But the U.K. is something like six or five percent. 
And it's the same 75-80%. Because it's what's comfortable, you know. I'm a Denver Broncos fan. I grew up Colorado, so I was in North Carolina. But I was always, you know, you invest in your home team. You cheer for them. So that's the reason most Italians are investing in Italian stocks. Most Aussies are the same thing. But that can be a very insidious problem when you have a massive bear market in that country. Look at Greece, right? Or look at Brazil, Argentina. If you're 80% in Greece as a Greek investor... It's painful. Right. So, but, but most important, and this is challenging for people because they don't always know ahead of time. They take the risk surveys. They say, this is what I think my risk tolerance is. And then what's the famous quote? The, the Mike Tyson, right? You, you have a plan until- you Everybody get... has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right. And so, but, but that's a lesson it's hard to teach someone and it's hard to give the expectations. So, uh, but that's one you learn. And, and it's a part of the maturation process of becoming an investor is learning what's comfortable. I mean, I'm a trend follower at heart. Half of my portfolio is in tactical strategies, right? Because I know that that's the way that it's easier for me to sleep at night. And that's always the biggest takeaway. I sleep great, but it uh, it's saying, you know, what what can you go to bed with each night and, and not have to worry and not worry about it and move on to the, you know, we talk so much on these, you know, interviews and everything about how to make money, how to invest, but there's the flip side too. And it's what how do you use that money? You know, how do you spend it in such a way that, you know, drives your happiness and, and um, you know, your goals in life and what you do with it? And a lot of people that is as emotionally challenging as well. Meb, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Uh, give us a list of how people can find you, follow you on Twitter, see your research. Give us your rundown of uh, of websites and and Twitter handles. We'll tell you what, if there's listeners that have made it all the way through this entire podcast, email me. I'll shoot you a free book or or go to freebook.mebfaber.com and I'll send you your choice. Uh, That's my blog, mebfaber.com. Over 1,500 articles on there. Um, Plenty of of work to put you to sleep at night. (laughs) It lists our white papers. There's about a half dozen. We got our fourth book just came out. And then title uh, of the fourth book is Global Asset Allocation: A Survey of the World's Top. How to spot? Oh, this is the other book. That's the third one. I know. Right, I got the third one and the second one. I don't have the fourth one. Give me the full title of that. Global f- Asset Allocation: A Survey of the World's Top Investing Strategies. And your Twitter handle? Meb Faber. And then for work, you can go to Cambria Funds. That's got a. Uh, Fact sheets on all the all the funds we run. And what about Idea Farm? Is that the a- Idea Farm? Yeah, that's that's geared towards the professionals, but we send out kind of curated the top two or three research pieces we come across each week, and it's it's geared a little more towards you know what I find interesting. But it, what uh, what's the URL for that? Theideafarm.com. Theideafarm.com. We have been speaking. Thank you so much. This was great. This was really a lot of fun. Um, we've been speaking with Mebane Faber, Meb Faber of Cambria Investments, author of Shareholder Yield and Global Value and the Ivy Portfolio, and the new one is Global Asset Allocation. Global Asset Allocation. If you enjoy these podcasts and you, at this point, 90 minutes in, you probably do, I would tell you, look uh, an inch above or below this and you'll see the other 39 or so podcasts that we've um, done so far. Uh, they, they're always with fascinating, interesting people like Meb. And if you're looking for an education, um, you could do a lot worse than listening to some of these. I have to uh, give thanks to my producer, Charlie Vollmer, to my engineer, Matt Ryan, and to my head of research, Matt Batten, Michael Batnick, for helping me put this together. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.